Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. QAnon conspiracies about a deep state plot against the president by Satanists and pedophiles have spread widely on the dark fringes of the Internet. Now some true believers are running for public office in Georgia. Being aware of QAnon is something that now has to be part of being an informed voter. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, a QAnon primer for voters. Plus... Today, I dedicate the news channel for America, the cable news network. Author Lisa Napoli follows Ted Turner's wildly improbable plan to turn an Atlanta cable station into a 24-hour news source that's redefined how we consume information. And the Atlanta Community Kitchen Project, firing up corporate kitchens left dormant during the pandemic. You know, I talk to our kitchen partners and they feel like it's such a gift. Cooking up solutions. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. QAnon is an amalgamation of conspiracy theories that have spread widely within the dark corners of the Internet since 2017. In the real world, QAnon signs have appeared at Trump rallies and on billboards. And now at least 11 QAnon-affiliated candidates are running for public office across the country. Marjorie Taylor Greene is among the most vocal believers, as supporters call themselves. She's a Republican in Georgia's 14th district running for a U.S. House seat and may have a real shot at being elected in November. A Pew poll published in March found that three quarters of Americans know nothing about QAnon and its theories that have been found to have no basis in truth by several sources. So today we're finding out more with Tia Mitchell. She's Washington reporter for the AJC. She's been following Green and other QAnon candidates in Georgia. Tia, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Also with me, Dr. Dror Walter. He's assistant professor at Georgia State University who studies how misinformation spreads online. And Dror, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. So Dror, I'm going to start with you. What have you learned about the origins of QAnon? What is it and where did it start? So the short answer is that, as you said, QAnon is a popular far-right conspiracy theory. The longer answer is that QAnon is a collection of various conspiracy theories that fit together and converge on one basic premise, the existence of a deep state or a satanic cabal of influential elites from Hollywood, from politics, uh, who are actually running the world and they are trafficking in children, either as a goal of this whole conspiracy or as a way to serve their dark organization. For example, some believe uh, that they sacrifice children to stay young. And it is related to previous conspiracy theories like Pizzagate and other similar theories. But officially QAnon, this iteration of the theory, can be traced to a series of posts that were made by a user which is called Q on web forums such as 4chan, 8chan, and later 8con. Q refers to his security clearance and is someone from the military or the government or from intelligence kind of operations. And he has confidential access to all kinds of cryptic information that relates to this cabal, to this conspiracy to traffic children and the fight against it. So according to this theory, Donald Trump is actually someone that was enlisted by these intelligence operations to destroy this secret society. And lastly, all of this leads to the storm. This is a cataclysmic event, uh, uh, the mass arrest, the final vanquishing of this whole child trafficking ring by Trump. 
Okay, so Donald Trump is sort of the conquistador battling this cabal of anti-American saboteurs, according to this theory. And Tia, in the last three years, we've started to see this crop up in domestic politics, especially among the far right. It's been documented. President Trump has retweeted and amplified QAnon theories as well. So broadly speaking, what is the Republican establishment reaction to QAnon? So I think this is one of those instances where there is a difference between the Republican establishment and President Trump, but the Republican establishment has avoided making that distinction. For example, as you noted, President Trump has not distanced himself from them, whereas others that you would consider establishment Republicans have not similarly indulged those conspiracy theorists. Most establishment Republicans have tried to ignore the conspiracy theorists. But of course, what we're seeing now is that there are candidates who could be coming to Congress, for example, who are joining President Trump, if not flat out feeding into the conspiracy theories. Uh Marjorie Taylor Greene up in North Georgia, probably a primary in that in that field. She's running to replace Republican Tom Graves for the House of Representatives seat in Georgia's 14th district. Got a lot of attention, including from national media. She's been retweeted by Donald Trump. And she declared that QAnon is, quote, a once in a lifetime opportunity to take this global cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles out. So she sounds like she's pretty much uh, out front as a true believer. Right. And so, of course, she's not the most media friendly, so it's hard to get straight answers from her. But if you just go off of what she has said, she's very active on social media. And she has these videos, not just on her social media pages, but various other pages for conservative far-right organizations, QAnon organizations, where she uses the hashtags and some of the phrasing and the symbols that align with QAnon, as well as repeating some of those conspiracy theories. But she's also come under some fire for making racist or xenophobic remarks. So how have Republican leaders, as you said, trying to distance themselves, but knowing that this could be a winning candidate, how have they reacted? So that's what I found interesting is that when it was just conspiracy theories in QAnon, most of the Republicans, um, the incumbents, the establishment leaders were silent. But once there was a political article that talked about racist and xenophobic comments, once that article came out, that's when you saw establishment Republicans distancing themselves from her. So when that political article came out, you know, she said that they were being weak and kowtowing to political correctness. This is the left in the media trying to take her out. So she said very, you know, very much in line with what you would expect from, for example, President Trump. What she did not do was apologize. What she did not do is try to clarify her statements or say she was being misinterpreted or misunderstood. Mm. Well, she won the initial primary, 40% of the vote across nine candidates, now in a runoff against John Cowan. 14th Republican strongholds, 2016, 75% of voters voted for Donald Trump. So whoever wins this runoff on August 11th is likely to win the seat in November. What, what do you think is making Green resonate with voters there in North Georgia? Well, there are 
voters in the district who are very aligned with President Trump. And particularly when it comes to the QAnon conspiracy theories, they might not be deeply versed in QAnon, but there are a lot of Trump Republicans who do feel like there has been concerted efforts to undermine him and his presidency. And so therefore, I think that the QAnon conspiracy theories are less troubling to those voters. Now, when it comes to the racism and xenophobia, as we know, the Republican Party has had trouble distancing itself from the more extremist parts of its party because establishment Republicans know that some of those extremists still help comprise the Republican base. And so they are very concerned about alienating their base and losing support in a way that will make it harder to win elections. And that's why the Republican Party, many people say, is in trouble because as the electorate in a more general sense moves away from those extremist views, when Republican Party is hesitant to call out those voices for political reasons, that puts them out of step with the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that the Republican Party just is really struggling with. My guests are Tia Mitchell. She's Washington correspondent for the AJC. And Dr. Dror Walter is with us. He's assistant professor at Georgia State University. We're talking about the growing presence of QAnon in American politics, a little bit about what its core beliefs are, who believes in it, and how it's making the jump really from the internet to real-world politics. Well, Dror, I wanted to pick up with you on that because that appeal question. You have studied how QAnon misinformation networks are created and who is drawn to them. So who, by and large, is most attracted in terms of demographics, sociopolitical leanings, personality, any, any data on any of those? So I think this is really the interesting question. And I think we do have the benefit of uh, there have been past conspiracy theories and hoaxes in the United States which caught on and that we have research on that we can draw on to try to understand QAnon as a conspiracy theory and why people are attracted to it. Uh, for example, I believe most listeners will be familiar with the story of the War of the Worlds, the broadcast by uh, Orson Welles back in 1938, uh -huh. which uh, depicted the fictional account of a Martian invasion of New Jersey. After the broadcast, researchers actually were trying to understand how can people fall for what is so clearly a hoax. And they try to provide us with categories for how we can explain that. And they offer four categories. You can think about the historical context. You can think about the content. You can think about media and technology. And you can think about the actual individual personal factor. So in the case of War of the Worlds, the context was that it was after the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. It was uh, during rising tensions in Europe that will lead to the Second World War just a little bit after that. So these tense times can make people very highly susceptible to hoaxes. The content, so all of the worlds was dramatized in the form of a news show, like this one. So it looked very convincing to people. Uh, from a media perspective, radio was very new to most of the people. It was their main source for news. So when a program that looks like news and gave people information came online and they listened to it, they were already programmed to treat it as something which is credible. And lastly, there were individual or personal factors this can be uh, emotional insecurity, a phobic personality, fatalism, lack of self-confidence, a, a lack of education, religiosity. So all this basically leads us to ask questions about how does this relate to QAnon? So if you think about the context perspective, 
the world is chaotic and scary, especially today. Mm-hmm. And anxiety is a predictor of being a believer of conspiracy theories. And again, this argument is made stronger because in our data, we actually observed a rise in QAnon popularity on Twitter in the recent several months. You mean so, so during, during COVID-19 that has spiked? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, there can be several explanations. It can be that people are isolated at home, so they have much more time to devote to conspiracy theories and going online and talking about it. Uh, it might be that this is a part of this anxiety-driven mechanism. It also might be that COVID-19 is such a dramatic, a, a global calamity that it really fits well in this kind of a, a mosaic or tapestry or tableau of a, a QAnon beliefs. And it might be also isolation. People are very isolated these days and conspiracy theories are a source of community a source of camaraderie. And again, there is also a media and content end. If you think about technology, for example, we did have conspiracy theories before, but today it's so much easier to actually promote these ideas and you have no oversight and even uh, you can even bury yourself in echo chambers where all you listen is to people who actually already agree with you. You don't hear any refuting information. Right. So you can, you can go down the rabbit hole, basically. But Tia, I want to turn this to you. You're In addition to Green, you're covering another Georgia candidate with ties to QAnon, Rich McCormick, Republican running in Georgia's 7th District, covering the Northeast Atlanta metropolitan area. And this guy, he's approached his campaign a little differently, certainly, than Green, putting some distance between himself and QAnon. So what, what does that look like for him? Yes. So first of all, Dr. McCormick, he's an emergency room doctor. He says that, you know, I don't know what QAnon is, but what his critics, particularly his opponents, the Democrats, what they're saying is he denies it, but he sends little signs that he's aligned. For example, Dr. McCormick has appeared on a QAnon internet radio show. He's been on there twice. If you research the show he appeared on, it's very clear that the network itself and the show hosts specifically are aligned with QAnon. But when you when I spoke to Dr. McCormick, he says, oh, well, I don't know that. I just someone wanted me to come and I take all invitations because I want to talk about my campaign. And then during his appearance on that show once, He repeated a conspiracy theory that George Soros had been donating money through the Democratic Party's online apparatus to benefit Black Lives Matter, which is true. But McCormick went on to say to sow discord, to sow unrest and violence. And that's where it goes from the ounce of truth into a conspiracy theory that George Soros is trying to use his money to back violence and unrest in the streets. But again, when I asked him about it, he said, well, I'm just repeating what I read. Is it not true? I'm not sure. I just read it somewhere. So mm-hmm. he distances himself and doesn't take full ownership but there are little clues that are dropped that if you're aligned with QAnon, you'll say, oh, he's speaking my language. Uh-huh. Well, the other thing that's interesting here, it is very interactive. It's a highly participatory kind of conspiracy. There are Q posts or drops, as they're called by QAnon believers. 
generally kind of vague, meant to be scrutinized and interpreted. What does this kind of coded approach do for the spread and appeal of QAnon? Uh, yes, it has this. So all the Q drops or the posts that are made by Q are very abstract in nature. So people actually need to follow the clues. They need to follow the breadcrumbs. They need to interpret them in order to make meanings out of them. And this has two effects. First, it makes it much harder to argue. Because it has all these ambiguities, every new information that you can introduce can always only support it. It can never refute it. On the other hand, it is also much more participatory. So uh, uh, there is an empowering part here because the ethos of this whole community is you have to do your own research. You don't just accept things that you tell you. You follow the hints, you follow all the breadcrumbs that you leave, and that makes this uh, uh, theory something that you can tailor to fit whatever you want it to be. Yeah. So we get a sense of the many tentacles of QAnon and, and how formidable it is both as a party affiliation, but also one that shrinks back from. I'm curious for you, you know, there's a, the Pew Research poll I mentioned. Just over 20% of Americans even know what QAnon is. Do you think more people should be aware of it? Tia, I'll ask you first. I think being aware of QAnon is something that now has to be part of being an informed voter. You need to understand QAnon because it'll help you understand the candidates that are going to be on the ballot. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is on the ballot in August. Rich McCormick is on the ballot again in November. So I do think it's important because we want people to be informed about the candidates. How about for you, Dror? There, What's the balance here between bringing awareness to QAnon versus the risk of, of giving it more oxygen, amplifying it, spreading the misinformation? I think this is exactly the tension. This is, this is the problem here. I think we know that media literacy is important. We know that cognitive abilities on the individual level do make a difference. So I think even before QAnon, we have to do better. We have to promote rational, analytical thinking, and we have to give people media literacy skills. And then it will be potent in making them into citizens who are still critical of the government, but ones that can also evaluate conspiracies and information rationally and see that this is conspiracy. So when we present QAnon, we do need to actually make corrections details. So every time we talk about it, we also need to explain why is it false. We need to disseminate them widely together with the misinformation. The main problem is that even if we do all that, we do know that this kind of conspiracy and hoaxes and fake news have a lasting impression even after you debunk them. We call this belief echoes. You learn the negative information about a candidate and that makes you hate them a little bit more. But then when you learn that the information that you got is actually not true, you don't go back to your original stance. You're now a bit more negative towards that candidate. Mm -hmm. So the question is, when you give people information about QAnon, how much are you actually in danger of indoctrinating, or how they call it in the QAnon circles, red-pilling people into this kind of belief system? That's, yes, a complex question. And it's a complex topic. I want to thank you both for talking with us about it. Tia Mitchell, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Washington correspondent, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And Dr. Dror Walter, he's assistant professor at Georgia State University who studies online misinformation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Virginia. I do want to let you know that Tia is working on an article about Rich McCormick, and you can keep an eye out for that in the AJC or AJC Online. 
Coming up, how two Atlanta nonprofits are firing up underutilized kitchens to prepare meals for people in need. That's when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Local food banks have been a lifeline since coronavirus shut businesses down and led to record unemployment. Researchers at Feeding America found that as many as one in four children could go hungry due to school closings and to summer vacation. Well, meanwhile, many large corporations that aren't open or not operating at full capacity have kitchens going underused. Two Atlanta-based nonprofits, the Atlanta Community Food Bank and Second Helpings, are coordinating to fire up these underutilized ovens to cook up meals to donate. And we are talking big. Corporate cafeterias, catering businesses, and even the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and State Farm Arena cooking meals for the Atlanta Community Kitchen Project. Andrea Jaron is Executive Director of Second Helpings and joins us with more on how this partnership came together. Andrea, welcome. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to be with you. So food insecurity, big problem, big empty kitchens, sounds like a great match that I understand this all started with an idea from the Atlanta Braves. How did it all come about? Yeah. So the Atlanta Braves were approaching opening day and um, opening day wasn't happening because of the pandemic. And they had a lot of food in their refrigerated space, a lot of ingredients. And I think that they collectively got together um, and decided that they were going to cook up their food and prepare meals for some people and wanted to be able to get it out into the community. And so they reached out to Kyle Wade at the Atlanta Community Food Bank to talk about how this distribution effort could happen. And Kyle gave me a call because Second Helpings Atlanta is really enmeshed in the logistics around moving fresh food from food donors to partner agencies who have feeding programs and can distribute the meals. And I got on the phone with my operations team and we started talking about it and the, and the program really grew from there. Right, because there are, I guess you discovered more and more kitchens being shuttered because of the pandemic. Right. So pre-pandemic, Second Helpings Atlanta um, has relationships with the stadiums, with corporate kitchens, with restaurants, with grocery stores. Um, And we, part of our regular food rescue operations, um, which is really the primary element of our work, was about picking up this surplus fresh food and delivering it. And so when the corporate kitchens shuttered because people weren't coming to the office anymore, and when the stadiums were closed because they couldn't hold their sporting events or concerts or anything else that they had on their schedules, it was just very logical for Second Helpings Atlanta to get involved. We already have these relationships with these entities, and we've got great relationships with partner agencies throughout the community. We know how they work. We know what their capacity is in terms of being able to store food, whether it's in a refrigerator or a freezer. We know how many people they serve and the days of the week that they serve. And so it was a very logical partnership for us to get involved with this. But that's raw food that you've been distributing or surplus food, maybe from supermarkets. And as you said, uh, big big commercial kitchens or, or stadiums. 
How about now with this project, they're actually, the meals are being assembled and cooked. What's the difference for you in that kind of logistics from distributing raw food before? <laughs> well, it's certainly at a much higher volume. Um, you know, the the surplus food that we'd pick up from a grocery store, say, um, there were potentially meals involved with that. So for instance, you know, sandwiches maybe that were prepared at Fresh Market, you know, those, those kinds of things were, were part of our typical wheelhouse. But these prepared meals now are, they're half pans typically. So there's um, enough to feed a family of four. And the logistics around that are a little bit more involved. Um, obviously, we follow the food safety guidelines under the pandemic and the concerns around COVID-19, listening to the CDC and their recommendations. But just the sheer volume and weight of a pan of food is different. Um, and fortunately, our kitchen partners are really, really accommodating and they help us think through the packaging. And um, Mercedes-Benz USA donated five sprinter vans for us to use for this project. So we have really good space in the vans and the kitchen partners seal those pans, they cool them, they freeze them. Sometimes they're packed in boxes and then the boxes are loaded into the trucks. Um, and then our drivers head off to the partner agencies and we, you know, know what the volume is that they're capable of, of storing, but um, we often are engaged in a little game of Tetris in terms of making sure that everything fits the way that it needs to. So it's a lot of physical labor and, and, and brain power at the same time. <laughs> right. And it sounds like it. And a lot of good partners. Now, the program is also really focused on addressing food insecurity among children over the summer, which is a time when food insecurity often flares up for children who are used to getting meals in schools. How about now with all this uncertainty around back to school, what are your concerns surrounding food insecurity now for Georgian kids? Yes, I think um, there's many of us that have very significant concerns around that. And, you know, the schools are in the process of making decisions on how they're going to be able to restart and whether it's going to be in the classroom or virtual. And a lot of kids, you know, get their meals at school. Um, so certainly this summer element helped to fill that gap. Um, many of our partners in this project are agencies that really do serve kids. And so they were acutely aware of the need to be getting food to families where I have a couple of meetings scheduled this week um, to look at what we're going to do going forward in trying to understand what we're anticipating the needs are going to be and how we can continue to positively impact the issue and, and get food out there. It's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Who's actually doing the cooking, Andrea? The kitchens themselves, the kitchen partners are doing the, the cooking. So their employees are being asked to come back and they're in the kitchens and they're preparing the food. And that's really part of the beauty of this whole partnership is, you know, we are addressing this food insecurity question and we're also helping to have a positive impact on some of the unemployment challenges. The fact that these kitchens were able to have their staff come back and be the ones to prepare the food and, you know, provide a paycheck for them is really incredible. And, um, you know, I talked to our kitchen partners and, 
and they feel like it's such a gift to be able to be involved in this. They have staff that didn't want to be idle. Um, it's hard to be sitting on the sidelines in this circumstance, and so many people are forced into that. And so the partnership is really um, meeting the needs in so many ways. Well, we will put a link to the Atlanta Community Food Bank and to Second Helpings at our website. That's gpb.org slash OST. And people can always donate both time or money to these causes. But beyond that, I think a lot of people want to know if they can help with efforts like this. Can regular folks help with this? They absolutely can. One of the biggest things that regular people can do right now is when you go to the grocery store, really think long and hard about what it is that you're purchasing and only purchase what you're going to consume. Because if people would buy what they're going to consume and and, um, not have excess that keeps food out of landfills, which is, you know, something that we're certainly trying to address in terms of impacting the environment. And at the same time, if you only buy what you're going to consume, then you're leaving things on the shelves. And that allows the grocery store to be able to pull those items off before they are reaching their sell-by date. And they donate them to, to food rescue organizations. And Second Helping Atlanta is obviously a major one in that area, too. So... That's a pretty easy thing for everybody to do and think about every single day. Well, quite a project, Andrea Jaron. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Andrea Jaron, Executive Director of Second Helpings in Atlanta, one of two partners in the Atlanta Community Kitchen Project. We're heading into a short break, but coming up, author Lisa Napoli on the wild origins of CNN and the 24-hour news cycle. Stay tuned for that and more when On Second Thought continues. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The CNN Center in downtown Atlanta is up for sale. Warner Media announced in late June plans to sell the landmark news hub and to consolidate staff into their Techwood campus, built on the very site where Ted Turner first launched the network on June 1st of 1980. Today, I dedicate the news channel for America, the cable news network. The maverick businessman assembled a scrappy team for his wildly improbable bid to turn a fringy cable station into an all-news network. And that story is captured in a new book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. I spoke with author Lisa Napoli for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series. And I asked Lisa just how groundbreaking the idea of 24-hour television was at the time. Well, until Ted Turner turned the switch on WTCG Channel 17 over on West Peachtree Street on all night, there was no TV all night. Uh, I know it it is really hard for people to imagine, but before cable had come along um, and before Ted had the idea, television stopped after usually the late movie. And it, and it was off all night until it fluttered on at dawn. So the idea of an all-news or an all-anything channel was like a, a spaceship from Mars. Crazy, 
crazy and un, un, unimaginable. So the man behind this moonshot, Ted Turner, who, you know, people of a certain vintage know WTCG Channel 17 here in Atlanta, made him a legendary figure here. Also owning the Atlanta Braves helped a lot. But his early life, maybe not so well known. He inherited the business a billboard business from his father, hard drinking, womanizing, magnate who who Ted worked for on and off. So what were some of the early signs of the unfiltered, persistent, risk-loving entrepreneur that he became? And signs is a good word because he was in the billboard business, his dad was, and he inherited the billboard business. And from the very beginning, he was theatrical. He saw um, grandeur in in even a billboard. The first thing he did really in, in any measure was steal the Braves telecasts from WSB by coming in and just overbidding. He didn't have the money, really. He certainly didn't have the audience, but he stole it from the vaunted WSB. But he would do things, Virginia, I've heard from a number of people that he would stomp on people's desks and say, buy ad time from me, even though they had no idea who he was or why they should spend money on ad time from him. He didn't let anything defeat him, even the fact that nobody was watching his television station, that he he spent money that he really didn't have on. Well, so this business that he started, and this also started with tragedy. He was left holding the reins of his father's business after his father killed himself. He was just yeah. 24 years old at that time. Yes. And started buying radio stations. And then this first UHF station, WTCG, Channel 17. Give us a sense of like how fringy UHF or even cable stations were at that point when he bought it. Uh, for people who might remember the time when you had to get up off the couch and turn a dial to tune in a station, UHF was the super fringe. They called it the lunatic fringe because it was very hard to tune in, in even uh, if you had the right devices. And uh, there was very little that was airing on it. They had a really scramble for programming. So it was a big gamble in and of itself. And then to do things like woo away the Braves um, and start putting crazy movies that no one else would air, uh, crazy commercials. And of course, Bill Tush is legendary. His crazy newscasts in the middle of the night, all of that combined to create a television station that people slowly but surely started tuning in, although they didn't always admit it. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more, especially people who don't know, and I'm sure people who knew Bill Tush when he was on the air, what the concept of news was at WTCG TV. Well, so as part of the licensing to uh, run a television station, you needed to show a certain amount of public affairs on the air. And Bill Tush was a young radio announcer who'd kind of basically stumbled into the station. And, And with all these other young folk who were just tantalized by the prospect of television, he'd basically been the sort of guy who drew the short straw as the station announcer who had to do the requisite newscast. And it it evolved over time into a fun requisite newscast that was not like any other. I mean, now we have lampoons of the news all the time. But they, uh, in the middle of the night, did a jokey newscast because they didn't really want to do a serious one. And they had to persuade their boss, the station manager, that it was okay to do this, that it would fulfill the FCC requirements for news. They did it tongue-in-cheek for themselves, but it became uh, the sort of signature or one of the signatures of the entire station. 
Well, it was uh, also a shot across the bow at the three major networks that had been deciding what news was and what programming should be for a really long time and created this kind of Wild West. And Ted Turner wants in. But but this, as you said, he was not a news guy and considered it kind of a downer. So what was the appeal for him starting an all-news 24-hour station? So once he got word that a little upstart called Home Box Office was playing around with cable the same way that he was playing around with cable, when he heard about this guy, Jerry Levin, and his HBO and how they were going to beam it up to a satellite and then broadcast it around the nation. He wanted to do that too. And movies were tough because you had to license it and get all the rights to them. He wanted to do it maybe with sports, but if he did it with sports, it would cannibalize the main ingredients of Channel 17. So he thought, maybe I'll do it with music And someone said, that's a dumb idea. No one will ever watch music on television. So finally, the last grasp of what he could do with this technology was news. And even though that wasn't his thing, that was his entree into using the satellite as a way to spread a station throughout the nation. Well, there was a serious newsman involved, Reese Schoenfeld. He's a journalist who thinks that WTCG schlocky programming is everything that's wrong with television news. He's got a vision far beyond what the big three networks are doing. So what is his vision and and how does Ted Turner come into that? Reese Schoenfeld embodies... uh, a number of men at the time who were trying to buck those networks. For years, people have been trying to pierce that network stranglehold on not just the news, but on entertainment. He'd been trying to sell news to Ted uh, for WTCG as an independent um, for years. And Ted kept saying, no, no, absolutely not. I hate the news. I'll never do news. So when Ted did decide to do news, that's who he called was Reese. And Reese um, was as hardcore news as Ted was anti-news. So they made a very unusual pair, but they both had the same goal in mind, and that was busting the conventional system of the networks. Well, that was part of the challenge that they were in Atlanta. So this is far away from, you know, New York or Los Angeles, the television capitals that were there at that time. And the other challenge is Reese, he'd never even produced an hour of live television. And he's signing up to do this 24-7 network, 365 days a year. So it was a real hustle to find that staff and turn this abandoned country club into an elaborate set and a newsroom. So what, what did it mean to bring people to Atlanta? What kind of challenges? Basically, Ted found as a location, or his people found, an old left-for-dead country club at 10th and Techwood, and they had to retrofit this old club with rats in it pretty quickly in order to have it ready. He was going to have the largest array of satellite dishes ever installed at that point, but also beside the equipment was the human resources. And as you say, convincing people to move to Atlanta for not too much money for something that might not work uh, was not a foregone conclusion. So basically, uh, Reese and and his folks, they decided that what they needed to do was just get cheap labor. You know, the tried and true was to go out and find young people who were willing to work for less than minimum wage. And meanwhile, hundreds of tapes were streaming in 
to the makeshift quarters on West Peachtree Street because there were people in local news who were dying to have the chance to be on the air or to produce network news. Uh, so there were people who were willing to put their life on hold. And the other thing that happened that was also incredibly unusual at the time, hiring couples was verboten or or keeping couples. If you'd met, you know, your husband or a guy at the television station you you worked at, one of you would have to leave. So if Reese could get a two for one, you know, a couple, maybe one was a camera person and one was uh, an anchor woman, he he went for it and, and it was cheaper to move them. And of course, they were invested in the place because everybody was marching toward this deadline of June 1st, 1980, um, and, and pitching in, wiring the Techwood Drive facility if they needed to, helping the techs, and uh, basically making it all up. And one of those couples was the married team of Lois Hart and David Walker, the anchors of CNN's very first broadcast. Good evening, I'm David Walker. And I'm Lois Hart. Now here's the news. President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief visit. My guest is Lisa Napoli. We're talking about her book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. Our conversation was recorded for the Atlanta History Center's Virtual Author Talks series. Well, it was such a big deal. If We know it went on the air June the 1st, 1980, despite hiccups, certainly. And a lot of old order news organization, let's say, cheering for its fall. You know, how are they going to find all this news? But it is because CNN had to fill time that a crew is following President Reagan to a snoozy speech in a Washington hotel in March of 1981 when he gets shot. Can you set up that scene for us a little and tell us why that was such a big deal for CNN? That was an amazing day uh, a year after CNN went on the air. It was still only in several million homes. There still weren't that many homes in the nation that could receive it because, you know, the cities were not wired for cable at that point. And so that twinned with the animosity of the networks and the disbelief on the part of the networks that anybody would care about news uh, 24-7, combined to make a a perfect storm on March 30th, 1981, when the president was shot. They happened to be inside, as you say, at the speech that he happened to be giving that was just time filler for CNN, which CNN needed a lot of at that point. Okay, Daniel Shore, We've just been given this hard word. The president was shot once in the left chest near the left arm. According to Lynn Nofsinger, the president is conscious. Basically, it was a day uh, that that put CNN on the map in the minds of the press corps. And that helped make them aware that there was not just a zest for the the news, but but the dangers that were introduced because of 24-hour news, because of the immediacy of news that we had not really seen in measurable form since President Kennedy had been shot. And that day that President Reagan was shot in 1981 really was people's worst fears about news and being news being reported like a sporting event as it was unfolding and all the attendant issues and inaccuracies that could happen as a result and the cascading effect of bad news being delivered instantly. Uh, we live it all every day now, constantly to our peril and detriment, I think. Uh, but that was one of the first times that we saw that. 
Right. You can't fact check in real time. But, but this whole idea that the news not reporting it in its aftermath anymore, but while it is unfolding was one of the things that Reese really wanted to do. And this this is, you know, the big question I think that li- that readers are left with is, especially during these first decades of CNN, whether it was covering significant things or creating significance by covering them, right? And and blamed for creating this churn of breaking news, breaking all the time. So so is the origin of 24-7 news something we should celebrate? Well, you know, I can tell you personally what I think. I, I avoided it in the book, but I think it's uh, super important for people to have the dialogue. And we don't have dialogues anymore. We shout at each other. That's why I welcome this conversation with you, because uh, news has deteriorated and debilitated our society. And I'm very sad about it. Um, I struggle with its impact enormously, which is why I think I enjoy writing the history of it, because I think it's only if we study the history of it, if we just shut down the polarization um, or trace back the polarization that we have in our society today to the news business, pre-CNN, because certainly, you know, President Nixon railed against the press as much as the president today does uh, in a different way, and the press was different. Um, But we've been seeing a societal breakdown because of television since television's inception. And before that, we saw it because of radio's inception. And I think, you know, my last book was about the creation of fast food and the woman who took that money and gave it all away. I would say the same thing back then. You know, I, I can't solve why we became enamored of eating food out of packages as we ran around, but I can explain how it happened and understanding it makes me a smarter and and more thoughtful, hopefully, human and consumer. And I say the same thing about news. I'm going to try and tie a couple of questions from the audience here in that, whether or not Ted watched his channel. You know, uh, he was a pretty hyperactive guy. But also the, the, the one of the surprises in the book is, is learning that Ted was essentially a, a conservative and how over time it morphed into this institution reviled by political conservatives like Ted Turner that was in the 70s and 80s. Well, it's so interesting because it takes somebody of a certain age, which I happen to be, to remember that politics did not used to enter into a television channel. It was it was not the world that we live in today, and it was absolutely not Ted's intent. Uh, you know what it's become today, and and as I frequently say, in 1996 when Fox started, that's when CNN had to shuffle and respond to competition. Until it had competition, the issues that were raised were basically those of accuracy and what is news. It raised the question, what is news? Is a little girl in a well news? Is a a shuttle exploding in the aftermath news? What is news? Uh, But once Fox came along and had its very decided point of view, uh, that forced CNN to scramble. And of course, that's that's a whole other book in, in and of itself that I'm sure has been written. I'm not going to read it, but it's, um, it's, it, it's, we've lived it. We've lived it. So that's what caused this, this polarization and political force that, that these channels have become. 
the toothpaste is out of the tube and it has evolved in the way that it evolved. Um, so let's go out on a sort of bright and triumphant note and talk Ted Turner, the sailor, you know, the yachtsman, the, the winner of the America's Cup. I know that that was part of the revelation for you writing this book was seeing who he was as in that part of his life as somebody who really could run things in a, in a, in a really determined way. You know, every single day that I was writing this book, and even now, when you just said that, I get chills thinking about it. Yes, he was, he would have been run out of town today, uh, as many men would have been from that era. Just, it's fair just to point out that that era was a completely different one. Um, but when you think about the way that Ted Turner lived his life, he lived it so large. He, we should all have a fraction of the gumption and excitement and thrill that he had in his life. And to watch those old sailing uh, films, if you can see any of them, they're a complete and total thrill. So exciting to see. And then to see him, you know, at the baseball game a few days later, screaming his lungs out, uh, you know, chewing tobacco, running bases around the field. It's just, he, he lived life. Uh, it was such a privilege to, to read and understand him. Again, a very complex character. But as I get older myself, I look for people I want to look at and say, who I hope he I hope in his fractured state right now that he he knows that he lived his life in such a, a grand and and he lived it. He lived it. So that's what we can all hope. That was my conversation with Lisa Napoli on her book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News, recorded for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series. You can join us on Tuesday, July 21st for best-selling author Bruce Feiler. His new book, Life is in the Transitions, collects stories from people who've been through wrenching life changes. So very timely. There's a full schedule and Zoom links at atlantahistorycenter.com. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan, supervising producer Amelia Brock. Jesse Nyswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. And I'm Virginia Prescott with a big favor to ask. If you enjoy the show on the air or listen to the On Second Thought podcast, please take a moment to rate us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps other people find the show, which is a big help to us. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.